Hi, I'm Teresita. And I'm Dick. And welcome to episode two of From the Hovel to the Big House. History has always held a great fascination for me. Until now, I haven't taken the time or probably hadn't the time to try to understand the strands that make up our society. So I've teamed up with Teresita, who is a historian. And over the next few weeks, we will look at the evolution of social history in Ireland. You can think of me as the man at the bear, asking the kind of questions a man at the bear would ask. I'm a social historian. And in my opinion, social history is just as important as every other discipline of history. Well, I've always believed that history consisted of wars and battles and territory disputes and uh, murder and all that. The kind of blood and guts type history. Blood and guts, exactly. (laughs) Well, I hope to open your mind a little bit on this podcast because, in my opinion, all of history matters. Every discipline of history, whether it's political, economic, social military, it all comes together to help us understand our past. This week we will be talking about entertaining. We've heard a lot about balls and socialising from the era you talk about. Uh, would you tell us a bit about them? Um, yes, well, in Ireland... Prior to the Act of Union, which was in 1801, Parliament sat in Dublin. So the Lord Lieutenant resided in Dublin Castle, and the Lord Lieutenant was usually a member of the Irish, or more commonly, the British aristocracy. So examples of the Lord Lieutenants were the Duke of Ormond, the Duke of Devonshire, and Lord Cornwallis, you know, big grandees. And as a result, Dublin had its own social season. And every year the social season began with a large ball at Dublin Castle. Would the uh, occupants of the big houses down the country go to these balls? Absolutely. Um, Prior, as I said, to 1801, the Dublin social season was, you know, the highlight of the year for the big house people. They would most of them would have gone to Dublin. Anyone who could afford it would have gone to Dublin, would have attended these balls. Uh, very important for, you know, what they call the marriage market, young debutants, all of that kind of stuff, which we now really associate with London. But in the in the 18th century, in Ireland, all that happened in Dublin. And I wonder, the way they're presented um, nowadays, with lovely white smiles and everyone's sober, <laughs> How realistic is that, given that they probably never washed their teeth in those days? <laughs> well, well, they had a kind of powder that they used to clean their teeth with, but nothing like what we have nowadays. Um, I don't think what we see in films and television series are totally realistic. I think that, um, you know, there would have been alcohol at these balls. I'm sure some people got a bit too tipsy. Uh, you know, I'm sure there would have been men who, who didn't behave quite as gentlemen should have and things like that. So I think that while it might be all realistic, at the same time, um, you know, at these balls in private houses, I do think a certain standard would have been maintained, especially when there were ladies present and things like that. So, you know, I think that the more raucous entertainment would have happened elsewhere. But given that there were... Drugs very freely available in those days, like opiates and laudanum. And, Absolutely, yeah. And alcohol, obviously, freely available. 
Would it not be likely that there was quite a rowdy and drunken scene at these parties? Um, I, I think it depends on where you're talking about. Certainly, you know, I don't have a huge amount of information on... Um, on what happened in Dublin, unfortunately, because very few first-hand accounts survive. But I know definitely in London during that period, um, at the, you know, the Prince of Wales, the Duchess of Devonshire, the the parties they threw involved a lot of alcohol, a lot of gambling, a lot of drugs, opiates, you know, laudanum was, you could just go into a shop and buy, which is a strong opiate. So definitely I would imagine there would have been an element of that in, in Dublin high society as well. And is it true there were um, pots under the table for men to urinate and during the meal? Uh, well, not exactly. What would have happened was if, you know, if you were having a dinner party. So after the dinner, um, the ladies withdrew to the drawing room and the gentlemen stayed and drank brandy and claret and things like that. And, you know, a footman or whoever, a male servant, may have, you know, passed a bucket around under the table and uh, yeah, for the men to urinate in and it would be passed discreetly around under the table and then handed back to the servant. Would this footman be one of these six foot plus? <laughs> he might. Men? I mean, they, they did all sorts of um, odd jobs. <laughs> white, white gloves, no doubt. <laughs> um, yeah, so from our perspective, that's very, very obviously unhygienic and doesn't sound very refined. But in many ways, I mean, the 18th century was a bit of a body age and it was in the 19th century that everyone got a bit more proper. I mean, the men could have gone out the back and done the business there and uh, they must have had a very low opinion of the servants. I think so. I think it, it very much reflects their attitude to the servants that, um, you know, it was just more convenient to do it this way. You know, why why would we bother going, you know, to, if they had water closets be a bit later on or whatever, whatever they had. Um, I think that's what it reflects. And what about um, the peasant? Did he have a social outing or was he just... Yeah, I mean, it's very unfortunate that um, we don't know a whole lot about what the the sort of lower class got over, got up to in that time, because most, many of them were illiterate. But I think, you know, they would have had public houses that they would have gone to. And also um, there would have been things like storytelling, kind of informal dances, that kind of, that kind of thing. For, for their socialising with each other. So they would have taken taken place within their houses as well as, you know, publicly. And would would the landlord ever have a party for the peasants or for the tenants? Yes. Um, you know, sometimes they did entertain their tenants. So examples, you know, from the 18th century would have been the Duke of Leinster and Lady Louisa Connolly, who both held dances for their tenants on their estate grounds. And um, in the 1820s, Lord and Lady Walls Court of Ardfry, which was in Galway, actually held a dance for their tenants and servants in their own house. Hard to beat Galway. Go on. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, we ha- luckily we, we have some... Lady Walls Court uh, has surviving diaries and she mentions that, you know, she was actually an English woman herself and new to Galway. And, um, you know, she mentioned that a lot of the, the Irish people there, they didn't speak... Little, much English and that they all drank a lot of whiskey which they called the crater so this was all new to her and 
By all accounts, it was a very merry and raucous affair where they danced Irish jigs, including the Lord and Lady of the House took part in that. And uh, in the words of Lady Walls Court, everyone got mad drunk. A bit like Theresa May at the, at the Conservative Convention, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so yeah, that did happen. And, you know, sometimes we see these big houses as being very, very separate in terms of their culture from the tenantry around them. And in many ways they were. But, you know, you do see these instances of them coming together. And another kind of example would be, again, in the 19th century, the Dunraven family of Adair Manor, who engaged Irish dancing in Irish dancing amongst themselves. So they had lessons for themselves. Um, so some of them were, were interested in the culture around them. There are something that I've been thinking about is the old Irish chieftains used to adapt poets and musicians. And um, two that come to mind to me, I suppose, from what we learned in school, one was Oraftri on Phila. He wrote a poem that was bait into us. And I still remember the first verse. It was, Anish Chaktanari, Tarnai Dolishina. Is Tereshla failure breeder or do And that translates um, this is the start of spring, the days are getting longer. And after St. Bridget's Day, I'll move on. And um, which would suggest that he was being kept somewhere mm. for the bed months. And the other one, of course, was O'Carroll and the Brian Harpist from, I think he was from around the Sligo or the Leitrim Roscommon yeah. area. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, when you go further into the past, the the Gaelic lords were known as important patrons of the arts. So they were keeping kind of poets and musicians in their courts, almost like exotic pets. I mean, it was like something you kind of kept if you were if you were one of these people. And so this kind of, I suppose, household and the kind of entertainment they had is very well described in Mariah Edgeworth's novel Ormond and in, in, in her novels, if anyone is interested. But yeah, I mean, after, you know, you know, some big house families did keep up this tradition into the into the 18th and 19th centuries. So the example you gave, like Turlock O'Carlin, he was, you know, patronised by the MacDonald Rowe family of Roscommon. And then Anton O'Raftri is another good example. So he was he was patronised by the Anglo-Irish gentry as well in the 19th century. So certainly an element of that tradition did survive. Now, as well as balls, were there any other forms of entertainment in the big houses? I mean, it was a hell of a long day for people that had nothing to do. Um, it was. I just want to briefly go back to balls, if you don't mind, though, because, you know... In Clare, there were balls. There were quite big balls in the 18th and 19th century here around, you know, obviously where we're from. So there was the Hunt Ball, which was more of a public ball, but there were big private balls held in houses such as Carcalla House, which is, is now a hospice. And that was the Crow family. So, you know, there is some information in some of the, the diaries that survived, that attendees included Lord and Lady and Quinn and all of the local gentry. So, um, you know, definitely balls took place in the country as well as even in, in somewhere as far flung as Clare, as well as in in the um, in Dublin. But you're right. Um, certainly, they had a long day to fill. 
So morning calls would have been very important part of um, upper class life, big house life. So there, and there was quite a strict etiquette. So those ladies would have, you know, called on each other. They were called morning calls, but they were more commonly um, take took place in the afternoon. So um, you know there were quite strict etiquettes around it, like when to call, how long to stay for, when to leave your calling cards, because everyone had a calling card that was very important. Um, and then in Ireland, in, in later, in the late 19th century, you know, when I, I spoke the last day about the emergence of a, a kind of a prosperous middle class who was trying to learn upper class ways, you could buy etiquette books, which told you, you know, how to go about these morning calls and all of the correct etiquette and everything like that. Because they badly needed that. <laughs> so, there's a song there, it was, it was very popular when I was a young lad. It was one of these old, sad old Irish um, ballads. I think it was sung by Delia Murphy. Uh, after the ball was over. Now, <laughs> this particular song dealt with a bit of heartbreak, a kind of a romance that went wrong and so on and so forth. But after the ball was over, what did the people do? Well, I think, you know, for some of the gentlemen, particularly in Dublin, there would have been what we would consider the seedier side of entertainment. And actually, George in Dublin was very well known for what were called its houses of ill repute. Some of these which have catered, you know, specifically for the upper classes. And they were almost like gentlemen's clubs, you know, with drink and entertainment and I suppose the added extras. Um, well, no, you'll need to tell us what the added extras well, were. Well, I think if it's a house of ill repute, <laughs> I mean, it's it's ladies of the night is the other... Prostitutes. Prostitutes, yes. Yeah. And he, the, the, the prostitutes who worked in these establishments were known as courtesans. He worked in the sort of, the, the, the establishments catering to the upper class men, or they were given the euphemism of actresses. So there'd be, I mean, the... The conditions there can't have been that healthy. There must have been a fair bit of disease walking around. Yeah, I think venereal disease was a big issue in the 18th century, as it was in, in, in every century, really. But um, certainly I have read letters, you know, from young noblemen, even in Ireland, even to their mothers, you know, looking for cures for for the venereal diseases they had. I suppose it was a good, it was good that right to their mothers like that. <laughs> well, I would think that mothers that in those areas were made, were made of sterner stuff than the mothers of today if their sons were writing about venereal disease. I think so, yes. And also, um, you know, it shows how casual they were about it. But um, yeah, there was definitely that side, especially, I mean, as I said, after 1801, things really changed. When Parliament didn't sit in Dublin anymore, um, the, the, the social season very much, you know, dimmed in importance and became much less prominent and the the very you know the the, the aristocratic families many of them in fact would have gone over to London for the social season then um because the, you know they would have been sitting in parliament over there so the better class of body house I'm <coughs> sorry excuse me I'm very interested in that <laughs> oh god <laughs> would the better class of body house would be clearly um Offering more than, say, the yes, lower classes. it would have. I mean, the, the better class ones, as I said, in some regards were, were similar to, to gentlemen's clubs. You know, they would have there would have been an element of networking there. There would have been drink serves. Some of the women would have been, you know, expected to be able to, to sing and dance and things like that. So it was a little bit... 
it was a little bit different, I suppose, to, to the, you know, what you would have found in the garrison towns. And tell me, would any of the better class fellas have wandered out to the lower class body houses? Strongly suspect that they would have. In fact, there's, you know, evidence in, in some of their letters that they did, um, particularly when they were in the army. Big question. Did anyone ever marry a prostitute? Any of the upper? Uh, <laughs> I am not aware of that ever happening. Doesn't mean it never did, but I'm not aware of it. Um, what did happen though, and this isn't to anyway suggest that these women were prostitutes, but you know, female entertainment entertainers in the 18th and 19th centuries—singers, dancers, opera girls—they were um, often stigmatized in high society and assumed to be prostitutes. However, some of them did marry into high Irish high society as well as British high society. So an example would be Rosie Booth, who was a gaiety girl and ultimately became the Marchioness of Hedford. And she married, um, she was from the lower classes, she obviously. She was from a, a lower class Catholic Irish background, yes. And mar- married a Protestant upper class. Uh, yeah, he was Protestant. He actually converted to Catholicism after marrying her. And, you know, she was actually, even though it created a bit of a scandal at the time and apparently even the, you know, even the king tried to intervene to stop the marriage. But, you know, once once they were married, she was well received in upper class society, both in London and in Ireland. And, you know, po- I mean, she was a very famously beautiful woman and, you know, she, she posed for famous, art, you know, photographers and artists and everything. So, um it, their marriage turned out to be quite a success. Yeah, God, he must have been stone mad about her to go through all that. Yeah, I mean, maybe he was just a bit of a rebel. Well, possibly. So, something that is on my mind a lot, I, we're constantly hearing in nowadays about the ballrooms of romance in the 50s and 60s, and, and, you know, my view of them is very different to say, and I was very familiar with them because my father was the secretary of the Craig's Carnival for years and we were booking bands and organising marquees and so on from a very young age, maybe from seven or eight years of age. And all I can remember was that they were like overcrowded cattle marts. The men, more like, um, I would say, ballrooms of rejection. Like the, the women lined up on one side, the men lined up on the other. And when after every three songs, there was a break and then there'd be a charge across the floor. <laughs> now, if you're an acclaimed dancer... You were tall and handsome. You owned a car, or you had a pioneer pin in your lapel. By God, if you had the four things, you were flying all together. <laughs> but if you had none of those things, <laughs> which most of us didn't, it meant that your night was generally spent hanging around the mineral bar, or out in later days when chip fans arrived, out eating chips and <laughs> <laughs> and watching fights. <laughs> So, <laughs> I, actually, it's it's interesting that you bring up that charge across um, across the dance floor because you know I, I mentioned earlier um, Lady Walscourt, who you know they they had their um, their ball for you know they had this dance for all the the local peasants and tenants and one of the things she noted as being kind of strange to Ireland was was that the women were on one side and the men were on the other and there was this charge across the room. Yeah, yeah. So old this habits. Is in, this is in about 1820s, so yeah. <laughs> obviously. Um, <laughs> old habits die hard. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I think balls and dances have always been an, an important part of courtship through history. And, you know, the 18th and the 19th century 
among the Irish gentry and probably among everyone else are, are no exception. As to how romantic they were, I don't know. Um, I'd say they probably were, were not as romantic as, you know, they seem in, in the costume dramas we see now mm. because certainly, um, you know, some of them would have been very crowded. I would imagine some of those, you know, some of those old castles and houses were very drafty and cold. Mm. Um, there would have been quite a bit of alcohol at them. So, you know, some people might have gotten a bit tipsy. Maybe grabbing girls and uh, inappropriate. I, I suspect that that, you know, I think that probably did happen. <laughs> Being realistic about, about human nature. So I reckon there was a few Brett Kavanaugh's around in those <laughs> possible <laughs> yeah I'd imagine there must have been especially among uh you know the upper class aristocracy I'd imagine would you know many of them would have had quite a sense of entitlement really given the the social position they were in yeah now the Debs balls they were another big thing weren't they the debutance balls yes yeah. I mean that was really launching young ladies onto the marriage market you know, that was the the point, young ladies of quality, which which really meant young women of, of the upper classes. Um, and the social seasons were when these these balls would have taken place. And uh, you know, they you know, they were very important for that purpose. What about a merchant's daughter or a farmer's daughter now? Would they be able to go to that? No, they would have been excluded from, you know, the upper class life. It's particularly in Ireland where a lot of the merchants you know, and you hear in 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 the in England certainly, and Scotland and Wales, very wealthy merchants did find their way into high society. In Ireland, that didn't tend to happen as much, um, especially back you know in the eighteenth or nineteenth century, because many of the merchants would have been Catholic, so there would have been a bit of a a divide, you know. But I mean, they would have had they would have had their own social scene. And where would they socialise? I'd imagine often uh, for the young women, it, it would have been in, in, in private houses because at the time, um, it wasn't considered proper for a respectable woman to enter a public house. The only time women, you know, respectable women did enter public houses would be the, the likes of the coaching inns. So if women were travelling, they might stay there or eat there. But other than that, it, it wasn't considered respectable. Yeah, up to the 60s, really, mm. and maybe even the 70s. Yeah. Women generally didn't go into bars like that. In some yeah. cases, they had a snog, mm. but I presume they weren't there in the area you're talking about. they were more of a 20th century, for as far as I know, yeah. invention, yeah. So, um, yeah, there, there was, even even among, you know, I'm talking more about the upper classes here, but even among the the lower classes, and especially... I don't like to call them the middle classes because they didn't resemble what we would call a middle class, but we'll say the upper levels of the lower classes, you know, there was still kind of ideas of propriety, particularly around young women. People of a certain level of refinement, maybe? Um, I don't know whether I'd call it... Maybe refinement, yeah. Um, but definitely propriety would have been important to them. So where... Okay, like, how did they meet up then? Like, in their own houses, was it yeah. all... Were they, you know, did they make matches? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, certainly there was matches made. Um, yeah. They would have visited each other in their houses. They would, you know, in the evenings, things like storytelling, music, those were important in, in Ireland. Those have always been important in Ireland. I suppose it's very hard to talk about what happened in those centuries without mentioning the Great Famine, which was between 1845 and 1848, I would think. 1850 around, yeah. Okay, and 
what happened with the entertainment and, and what went on in that era? Well, the big houses certainly didn't stop entertaining during the famine. Um, they were aware, of course, they couldn't but be aware of what was happening, I suppose, outside their walls. And they did, especially the ladies of the houses, they did tend to um, organise some charity endeavours. But at the same time, you know, this was the same class that tended to be the landlords. And, you know, we all know they were notorious for their evictions and so on during the famine. So, um, you know, they, they had a kind of a, I suppose, an unusual, an unusual situation in that they were, almost in, so, in some ways, slightly removed from what was going on and, and not really, you know, affected by what was going on all around them. So the balls and the general entertainment continued right through it. Some of it may have been cancelled at times, but overall, uh, yes, the entertaining kept on. I mean, for example, we had, you know, from the Countess of Dunraven, her her diary and her letters, we see how she was, um, you know, spoke about her concern for the poor people and, you know, that, that she was aware that there was hunger and this and that. But in the same diary then, she, she talks about her stress at... Her, you know, the design for her new chimney piece, which obviously would have been, you know, part of, of what they showed off in their entertaining, you know, the, their decor and so on. So, yeah, it, it was kind of an, an odd uh, an odd situation that they were found themselves in. Um, as regards actual charity, the, the main, I suppose, people who really made a difference during the famine were the Quakers who came over to Ireland and set up the soup kitchens rather than the, the ascendancy here. We really don't hear much about them anymore, do we? Um, not really, but I think it's it's important to remember that, you know, that they did play this important role in our history. Yeah, that's great to hear. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much. And I hope you enjoyed today and that it gave you something to think about. See you again next week. <laughs>